Ahlan wa sahlan, benvenuti, falce, titambire. Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts at the University of Glasgow. We bring you sounds about integration, languages, culture, society and identity. Hello and welcome, lovely listeners. My name is Dr. Dan Fisher. Uh, I'm a researcher with the UNESCO RILA team. And I'm joined today by uh, Adam Williamson and Sausan Abdel Ghani. And this is the first of a two part episode where we'll be talking about their uh, MPhil theses that they wrote in 2022. And uh, this is an opportunity for us to. Uh, go through their work and yeah just discuss a bit what what it is that they were up to and what it is that they found. So in this first episode Sausan and I will be interviewing Adam on his thesis regarding court interpreting and in the second episode Adam and I will be interviewing Sausan on her work regarding ESOL for refugees in Scotland. So Adam will take it away now. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what asylum appeals are and why interpreters play a key role in ensuring that appeals proceed fairly. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me on this wonderful podcast. Uh, first experience for me. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, asylum appeals, as the name would suggest, are, are when someone has their initial asylum application rejected, which happens a lot in the UK. Uh, they have a right to appeal their case and go before the Immigration and Asylum Tribunal. And interpreters are key, not just in appeals, but throughout the asylum process. So from the very beginning, when someone arrives in the UK for their initial screening interview with the Home Office, through to what's called, I think, the substantive interview. And the, the initial decision by the Home Office is based on that substantive interview. And if the claim's rejected at that point, then uh, there's the the right to to go to appeal, and the vast majority of of appeals are eventually approved. So uh, yeah, in, interpreters in, intervene right the way through uh, that process of interview, and then any eventual asylum appeal. Mm-hmm. For anyone who's not attended an asylum appeal, can you describe it, or at least what an asylum appeal in the UK looks like? Yeah, yeah. So I should say that. Um, for my research projects, one of the main methods was participant observation of asylum appeals. And it was quite an interesting time to carry out that kind of research, because obviously when I started, it was maybe February, March 2022. So COVID was still very much uh, in everyone's at the forefront of everyone's mind. And it meant that there were still restrictions in place around who could access courtrooms. There were quite strict limits on the numbers of people. That could be present. So I couldn't actually go in person to observe the appeals. So I was um, observing remotely through the, the virtual platform um, that the tribunal service uses. So it was probably a, a very different experience uh, than what it would have been if I was there in person. But yeah, I can give you a, a description of uh, of how the, the appeal looks from, uh, from what I saw on the screen anyway. It's um, quite a basic setup with the immigration judge at one side of the room in a kind of elevated position. And there tends to be a kind of horseshoe formation of, of tables set out 
with the Home Office presenting officer uh, on one side, and on the other side would be the the appellant, the person that's uh, that's seeking asylum, and their lawyer, and of course the interpreter. And the positioning of the interpreter would vary from hearing to hearing. I would say probably most often they would be positioned close to the appellant on either side of them. That's the kind of basic setup. So you'd have those those parties and then the only other person that would be present would be the, the clerk. And sometimes they were in the same room. Sometimes they were also joining remotely from an adjacent room. It just depended on the, the hearing centre. Mm-hmm. And so when you say you were attending virtually and this is what the courtroom looked like to you, was there a camera in the room that kind of let you see this uh, horseshoe shape or was there a kind of camera per person lined up in a virtual room in a horseshoe? It tended to be quite a basic setup of just just the one camera that would give you uh, a kind of view of the room. So it did vary in terms of the quality of view that you had. Um, sometimes you would just get an, an image that was mainly just the judge and you couldn't really see the other participants that well. But it generally it did tend to just be the one camera. Mm-hmm. And coming back to the role of the interpreter in the appeal, if someone has a good grasp of English, let's say, why can an appeal not proceed without an interpreter present? I would say that it can proceed. If someone says that they're competent in English, I think it's very likely that the, the tribunal would initially anyway accept that and be happy to proceed. I think there's definitely an issue with that because when it comes to asylum cases, the, the level of scrutiny that the person's account of their well-founded fear is subjected to is extremely high. So while the, the tribunal, and as I say, this is probably just more my personal feeling rather than something that I can prove with evidence, but while the tribunal might be happy for a hearing to proceed in English, I think it would be very wrong for that to be the case because, as I say, of the minute detail that the the Home Office representatives dig into to try to undermine the the appellant's credibility in these cases. Um, so I I do think it's to be honest it's it's not ideal to to conduct this kind of hearing even with an interpreter because it's just not ideal for participants not to speak the same language. But that's unavoidable. But I think it's definitely preferable to have an interpreter. Probably even if someone communicates relatively well in English, it is a very unfamiliar environment. Um, and I think having that linguistic support. There's definitely research to show that that's beneficial to people, even if it's just the fact that it might give them more time to process information, to to think through their answers, just because of the extra time it takes for interpreting to take place. And so I, I would say this is quite a unique research topic. Can you tell us like what prompted your interest in this area? Yes. Um, so I did a master's degree in interpreting in 2017, 18, and it just so happened that Once I graduated, quite a lot of the interpreting work in Glasgow at the time that I picked up was for asylum seekers who were coming mainly from Central American countries, particularly El Salvador, Nicaragua, countries like that, where most of the cases were linked to pretty extreme gang violence. Uh, So there was a a pretty big influx at that time. So I started interpreting at a solicitor's uh, practice in Glasgow. I, I didn't know anything about the asylum system really at that time, aside from what you'd pick up generally from the media. I obviously knew it was a very controversial topic. I knew that it was a hostile environment, as as Theresa May baptised it. So that was kind of my way in, if you like, to to get to know what the asylum system is really like. Uh, And I met quite a lot of interpreters 
solicitors and, and asylum seekers and saw that quite often the way that interpreting was provided, the way that the meetings took place with solicitors, a lot of the practices uh, shocked me quite a bit and I could see that there were a lot of issues with the way interpreting was, was provided within, within the asylum system. So I did always have something in the back of my mind that it would be good to bring this to light and to try to, to do something about it. And luckily, um, I saw the, the opportunity to, to apply for the UNESCO RILA programme, the, mm-hmm. the scholarship that was available at the end of 2021, that would have been. And I very nearly didn't apply for it, actually, because I was <laughs> I was thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to write a, a proposal for a research topic, which I hadn't ever done before. But eventually I, I said, well, I may as well fire something off and nothing ventured, nothing gained. Here we are. There you go. So, <laughs> listeners, that's the, uh, the 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 sub message to this uh, this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, I mean, working with interpreters can be uh, surprisingly tricky. I think people imagine it's quite straightforward, but then when you actually get down to it, it's difficult. And you just mentioned there were some practices that you were aware of before you started this that you thought were quite shocking. So what are some of the things that people should be aware of in the asylum system when working with interpreters? Yeah, I think this is this is an important issue because obviously a lot of the time when someone arrives to seek asylum, it's perhaps quite unlikely that they'll have ever worked with an interpreter before. And if you just stick someone in a room in that situation, they've just arrived in a, a strange country and you stick them in a room, with an interpreter, someone who speaks their language in an interview context, I think it's only natural that you might latch on to that person. You might think that they're there to to help you. You might think that they're there to advocate for you. And that might not be the case, but I think it's it's important to understand that working with an interpreter is, is not something that, that most people are, are familiar with. And I think in, in the asylum context, and I'm just, again, speculating here, but maybe people are arriving thinking that they're coming into a, a country that's going to welcome them in, that's going to be favourable to their claim, that's you know, really going to defend their human rights. And as we know, the way the asylum system set up in the UK is, is not really like that. It's very, very difficult for, for someone to, to arrive here in the first place and then to, to actually go through the process to get asylum. So I think that that whole context is important. And then I think people obviously need to realise that interpreters aren't really necessarily there to help them. They might, uh, whether they should or not, it's a different question. But I think there needs to be some basic level of information provided to people as to what the interpreter's role is when they arrive. And even down to the, the simple logistical things about turn-taking and interpreted interactions how long to speak for, asking people to speak clearly, etc. At the moment, there's not really any of that advice provided, particularly to, to asylum seekers when they arrive. And I think that's something that, that really needs to be there. It doesn't have to be anything too, too elaborate, but I think some kind of standardised information would be really useful for people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you've spoken about the challenges for people seeking asylum to work with interpreters, but I seem to remember from reading your thesis that it's also about training the other actors in the courtroom to work with interpreters in a certain way. What kind of interactions did you see there? Yeah, it's funny because the only real published guidelines for working with interpreters 
that I found as part of the research were, were for home office interviewers and for judges. So there is guidance out there and some of it is is pretty good, I would say. But in practice, what I observed, particularly in the in the in the appeal hearings, went against that quite a bit. Particularly something that came up quite a few times was this focus on every word being understood uh, and word for word translation or word for word interpreting and that's not a notion that is really uh, helpful or you know it's not one that really corresponds to to reality because you can't really have word for word translation that's not really uh, how it works again it goes back to that that insistence on on the home office's part of uh, scrutinizing absolutely every line every sentence of of someone's statement and making sure that every single word matches up and yeah i think as i say that's that's just not something that particularly judges should be using uh, as a, a frame of reference in, in the courtroom and so for the for the non-linguists among us can you explain why is it impossible to interpret word for word yeah i mean just taking the the different grammatical structures of of different languages for example if you interpreted literally word for word, you'd end up with something that was completely unintelligible. You also have different terminology, different nomenclatures in different languages that if you tried to translate with just one word, again, would, would have absolutely no meaning. So if, if someone, I don't know, for instance, was talking about some kind of intelligence service uh, in, in their home country um, and they used a particular word that's used to refer to that if you just said that word to you know to an, a native english speaker they would have absolutely no idea what it was so obviously you need to elaborate you need to explain certain things so yeah word for word is just a, a really simplistic notion of uh, of languages or of how translation in general would would work i would say yeah i think i i'm, I'm i vaguely remember a case where and I think it was uh, it was something along the lines of the applicant was referring to a secret service type agency, and in their substantive interview, they'd it had been interpreted as the army, and then in the hearing, it was interpreted as the secret service. And then I remember the Home Office presenting officer spending a long time uh, using that as an example of the person twisting their story. Exactly. That's that's the case I was I was thinking of particularly. But also even simpler than that, you have in different cultures, it's very common for people to call certain relatives uncle or brother, for example, uh, when they're not actually their um, their brother or uncle by blood. It's it's a term of of affection almost, or it's just the way that they they would call certain people. And that's also the kind of thing that the Home Office can highlight and ask them interrogate them on in a hearing so yeah i think that illustrates well why you can't really rely on word for word uh, translations there has to be a recognition that interpreting is is more complex than that it's it's about decoding demystifying meaning uh, from language to language and acting as a kind of intercultural mediator if need be yeah and at, at risk of sort of triggering you almost um, <laughs> the other kind of key phrase that comes up in I think the guidelines is the phrase impartiality or that an interpreter will be impartial in their interpreting. And I, I think this was part of your thesis was trying to, again, explain why this, why, why something that sounds simple isn't simple. 
can you explain how yeah how is it hard for an interpreter to maintain a kind of strict impartial position in the courtroom yeah i think this is a huge debate in interpreting studies in, in particular uh, i think that you could ask me about it on different days i'd probably give you different answers and probably the same would be true for <laughs> uh, for most people but um i think in terms of impartiality it is something that's hammered home consistently in codes of conduct for interpreters and certainly from the training that, that i've done as well it's it's something that's that's definitely emphasized that you're there just to facilitate communication you're not there to advocate for one party or the other you're not there to give advice you're not there to to do anything other than linguistic and potentially intercultural mediation but i think you always have to bear the context in which you're operating as an interpreter in mind. And I think if you take the situation of a home office interviewer or an asylum appeal hearing, what you're dealing with is a context where there's a huge, huge power differential. Take the appeal hearing, just for simplicity, you have a judge who's extremely highly educated, probably extremely uh, wealthy, extremely privileged, who's sitting with literally the power over this person's future in their hands. Uh, you have the, the Home Office representative, again, highly educated, privileged, etc. The same goes for the appellant's lawyer. And then you have this person that's coming into the country to basically throw themselves down before the before these officials to try to save their life. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about in asylum cases. So there's this huge, huge power differential to start with. And then if you also add in the factor that we all know that, that the UK asylum system is designed to be hostile, um, and that's becoming progressively more true as, as the years go on, or at least it seems that way, then I think if you look at an interpreter in that context, if you go into that situation and it's already so skewed against the, the appellant, what does it mean to be impartial in that situation? Um, because if you just go in and you just concentrate, as you traditionally would, on, on language transfer and potentially explaining misunderstandings or, or something like that, then I suppose you could argue, I'm not saying that this is necessarily my opinion, but you could argue that what you're doing is you're just facilitating that power imbalance. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of allowing that to exist. It's not necessarily the interpreter's job to, to reverse that power imbalance. But I think there's definitely people that would say that part of an interpreter's job might be to explain how the processes work to, to the appellant or to make them feel more comfortable, for example. Um, so I think there's there's definitely things that interpreters might do to in some way reflect the fact that there's a huge power differential there. And some people would say that that's a breach of impartiality. And some people would say it's definitely not. Um, I don't think I'm quite decided uh, where, where I sit. I think I probably would fall down more on the side of uh, as long as you're not intervening to you know, to change someone's words or to, to give them advice on what they should say. I think that would be a clear breach of impartiality. But if it's something like explaining how a procedure works or explaining how, in your experience, cases tend to go, I don't really think I see 
too much of a of a problem with that whereas others as i say definitely would yeah so adam i have a question about this so in this environment of um like the power or it's like some stressful situation for the, the, the asylum seeker so who is responsible to ease this stress like the judge should take the initiative if he's good or if the interpreter is like someone nice and trying to make it like simple and trying to is this allowed in the courtroom to be like more uh, friendly to the asylum seeker or it's forbidden i think it's a, it's a really really good question um as for whose responsibility it is i mean i suppose in in the case of the the tribunal the judges all powerful, I suppose. So I suppose it, it would be the judge that's that's responsible for looking after the welfare of, of everyone in the room. And I did see occasions where an appellant was perhaps becoming a bit agitated or distressed and judges would suggest taking a break, uh, allowing them to, to leave the room for a while, you know, to get a drink or to, to calm down or, or whatever the case may be. In terms of the interpreter's role in that situation, I think it would very much just depend on the interpreter's personality. I think that some interpreters would just see a situation like that if an appellant was becoming upset, they, they would just take a back seat because they, they would say that's that's not really their job to get involved in that, in that side of things. They're just there to, to facilitate communication. Whereas others certainly would uh, attempt to comfort appellant. I, I remember one appeal um, that I observed where uh, an appellant was becoming quite angry at, at some of the questioning from, from the Home Office and it can be, you can understand why that can happen because it is an interrogation really um, and it can go on for a long period of time. They often repeat the same kind of question again and again and frustration obviously builds up if you're given what you think is the same answer and you're not making progress and I remember this interpreter kind of telling the the appellant to to calm down, yeah, trying to quell their their anger a little bit, and that's that's again something that's questionable because surely, it, it, if you take interpreter training, that's definitely not something an interpreter should do. If someone's angry, you're not there to tell them to calm down. You're there to reflect that. You're there to, um, you know, to transmit that across. If someone's angry, it's obvious, even if if you don't understand the language. But I thought that was interesting in that occasion that, that the interpreter felt the need to to kind of intervene and uh, basically tell the appellant that you know that's that's enough <laughs> it was it was kind of that that kind of feeling to it yeah. so yeah I think it's it's a really interesting uh, interesting point I think here we have the the issue that everyone except for the appellant is a yeah. is a repeat player so you know the appellant doesn't necessarily know what is normal what is not normal in this and in, in this context and you know you do see interpreters sometimes take on that role of explaining you know what what is expected or what is normal and I mean I would definitely say that that should have happened before that should be hopefully the solicitor that should have prepared them for it but we know that's not always possible but I can also coming back to what you were saying at the start is, you know, this is a person who, even if they don't know anything about someone's case, they might share something of their culture or they might understand why this person is stressed in this scenario. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 
I think in, in your thesis, there's quite a few examples of uh, communication breakdown occurring despite uh, the presence of the interpreter. Yeah, is there one that kind of stands out in your in your in your mind? And can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, I think there's there's definitely one that that kind of sticks out above all others, uh, which was a kind of case where it was a coming together of, of several several factors that just led to the, the hearing completely degenerating, but degenerating very, very slowly <laughs> and progressively uh, over the course of over an hour. That is the worst case scenario. <laughs> it was. Um, from a research point of view, it was it was good for me, but not for anyone else and anyone else involved. So this was this was a case where the the appellant or appellant, uh, not sure about the pronunciation, um, but the appellant was um, was speaking a language called Tetun, which is a a minority language, or it's not really a minority language. It's a a language spoken um, in East Timor in Southeast Asia. So obviously, it's it's not a language that you come across necessarily very often in the UK. And this hearing was taking place in Belfast. It was, I think, one of only a couple of hearings outside of Scotland that, that I observed, um, which was, was interesting in itself. But so we had the hearing taking place in Belfast, but the Home Office representative was appearing by video link from Scotland. Uh, and I was obviously observing uh, from Scotland. Uh, and basically the the main issue appeared to be that the the appellant and the interpreter didn't seem to understand each other. So it kind of seemed from from the beginning that the, that there was some kind of issue there. Somehow they, they managed to muddle through uh, quite a bit of the the beginning of the hearing and they did ask the appellant several times if they understood the interpreter because there was hesitation and, and things like that. It was quite clear that that something maybe wasn't quite right and the appellant said that they did they did understand the interpreter so it continued but then eventually it became clear that there was definitely a, a major problem because the Home Office representative was asking simple questions like, who did you live with in your home country? And they were having to repeat this question three, four times, and the interpreter still wasn't eliciting any kind of <laughs> response from the, the appellant. So it was clear that either there was a major psychological problem or there was a real problem with the interpreting or with mutual comprehension. So they eventually had to, to suspend the, the hearing and they tried to, to locate another interpreter, but I don't think there's an abundance of Tetun interpreters in Northern Ireland. <laughs> so they, they eventually had to, to admit defeat. But what was interesting was after the, the pause in the hearing, the appellant's representative came back in and said to the judge that they'd spoken to the client and the client had actually said that they didn't understand the interpreter, but they felt too intimidated. They didn't feel confident enough to raise that with the tribunal. So what is the problem, the dialect or where, where it comes from, the, this misunderstanding or they don't understand each other? I can't say for certain, but I did a little bit of research into Tetun and it, it did seem as if there are two main dialects. There's mm -hmm. a more indigenous dialect and there's a dialect that's greatly influenced by Portuguese because Portuguese was the, the kind of colonial language 
in that part of the world. So I, I have a little bit of Portuguese from from university, so I could understand words uh, at times when the interpreter was speaking. So it's my feeling or my kind of guess, if you like, that the interpreter perhaps spoke the dialect more that was more influenced by Portuguese and the appellant spoke the more indigenous dialect. Yes. That could be where it came from. Yeah. It was also interesting that once they were looking for another interpreter, the the clerk was was obviously um, the one that was was trying to book another interpreter, and they asked if the the appellant spoke Portuguese. Yes, they make sure uh, yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, I know it's not easy because as an Arabic speaker, I know like if someone speak Arabic, but um, because I was in this situation, I was translating to Sudanese. And it, normally I have so many Sudanese friends, but for, for this person, because he just came from Sudan, he has a real completely different dialect. At the beginning, I was trying very hard to understand him because I know it's very hard to take an appointment with a solicitor. Uh, so I didn't want to waste him this time after maybe waiting three weeks. I didn't want to apologize. And I say, OK, I'll try. But then we came to a point we can't understand each other. So I said, no, I he, he need to get one from Sudan. So it's very important. Maybe the appellant or the home office should have like this awareness. If you speak a language, you should ask from the same. If you're Moroccan, you ask for Morocco. If you're Sudanese. So it's not only like seven languages. It's languages and something under. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah, you absolutely have to bear in mind that what you said there about it was difficult to get an appointment with the solicitor. There are always pressures like that in the background of these events as well, particularly with with appeals because there's such a huge backlog. There's pressure on everyone to to get the appeal done. And that definitely comes across or came across several times in situations where there might have been a, a bit of an issue with the interpreter or someone was unsure whether they wanted an interpreter or not. I could definitely feel that there was a pressure there in terms of we're here now, we have to get this done, let's let's go for it. And I think that's maybe why, in the case I was just talking about, we got to over an hour before they eventually decided to, to abandon the hearing. That's a, a very good point. There's there's so many background pressures that have an influence on, uh, on pe- people's decisions around interpreting. I think it's really important to reiterate the power imbalances that are here and everyone's under pressure to get the hearing underway, but no one will feel that pressure more, I think, than the appellant who has been waiting months for this hearing to yeah. go ahead, who may or may not be receiving support during this time, and who won't know that they have the right to say that they don't understand the interpreter. And so you said that they had um, checked uh, that they understood each other. Can you describe how this check takes place? It's very, very rudimentary. Um, all that happens is basically the the judge asks the appellant in English whether they understand the interpreter. So obviously in that situation, the judge is relying on the interpreter to relay both the question and the answer to that faithfully. And as we've just said, you know, you're hoping the majority, the vast, vast majority of interpreters would uh, be truthful if they're if the appellant said there was a problem or if the interpreter could tell there was a, a mismatch in dialect or they didn't understand each other. You're hoping the interpreter would flag that up, but who knows? That obviously might not always be the case. And there's there's not really a mechanism in place for the the judge to to be able to have some kind of evidence to prove that 
the appellant and the interpreter do understand each other. Yeah, and you've got a, an added issue, which is that this check, you know, takes place at the start of the hearing when, you know, so far there's nothing, there's no complicated vocabulary that has been used. It, sometimes it's just, can you check you understand each other? Hello, hello, yes, okay, let's go. Or much, maybe yeah. a perfunctory introduction between each other and then they confirm. Um, yeah, there were some occasions where the judge would ask a question, for example, how did you get to the court? courtroom this morning so you can kind of see a kind of attempt there to go beyond just do you understand each other uh, so there there were several occasions where that did happen but again if you think about that I mean does the does the judge know how the appellant got to the, the courtroom uh, that morning so that they can check if it's true uh, maybe they did check I don't know but um, again it seems maybe not the best way to check yeah, it seems highly unlikely that a judge would know how, <laughs> how someone <laughs> arrived. So, yeah, I think we're nearing the end of our time. And, you know, you've you've spoken really eloquently about some of the, the problems encountered in the courtroom and the interpreting. And I was just wondering if, I mean, I know that you've um, suggested some solutions in, in the thesis uh, to some of the problems you've encountered. If you, let's imagine a kind of elevator pitch or that um, kind of for people who are listening now, what, what, what can they take away in terms of what might be some of the, uh, the options going forward? Yeah, I think to give just a few overarching solutions, I think that uh, during the, the process, we came up with an idea and in fact, uh, you were quite uh, influential in, in this, Dan, for developing a kind of mutual comprehension test. And it's, it's nothing very elaborate, really, but instead of asking a question to the appellant to check comprehension, what we came up with was the appellant could be shown an image which isn't visible to the interpreter, but is visible to the judge. And the judge could simply ask the appellant to describe the image through the interpreter. So I don't know, it could be a house with four trees and a couple of children playing or whatever the case may be. And if the description comes back and it, it more or less matches the image, if, if the description comes back through the interpreter, that is, then it's a good indication that there's a basic level of, of mutual comprehension there. I think something like that would be really useful. It, it wouldn't take a lot of time or resources either. Uh, so I think that would be a really good idea particularly for appeal hearings when, you know, if, if the hearing is postponed or cancelled, it's, you know, it's a real waste of time, money and resources for everyone. And more importantly, it's, it's prolonging the, the time that someone's in the asylum system. So I think that would be a pretty easy one to, to implement. Uh, I think in terms of other solutions or conclusions, as we were talking about, I think standardised guidelines for asylum seekers to be able to communicate through interpreters could be made available. Um, again, at pretty low cost. It would be important to provide that kind of thing online in audiovisual form and in different languages as well. Um, because if you just provide it in written form, you wouldn't be catering for people that perhaps um, are illiterate or haven't, haven't had a, a formal education. And these guidelines could be issued to interpreters who work in interviews and, and appeal hearings so that they can they can translate them to to appellants 
particularly if it's uh, one of their first times working with, interp with interpreters. And I think maybe to finish off, we haven't really spoken about, about this side of things so far, but I think that what we really need on the interpreter side of things is access to a, a training course that focuses specifically on uh, on the asylum system because we do have public service interpreting qualifications like the diploma public public service interpreting um which has a, a medical route and a legal route but the legal route obviously will contain some element of uh, learning about the asylum system but i think we we probably need a, a separate course for that specific environment because it is uh, such a complex one uh, and courses like this uh, have actually already been developed in fact the united nations high commissioner for refugees in austria has developed a really comprehensive course uh, which they've published freely online it's available in english french german and russian and it covers a huge range of issues from asylum and refugee protection to note-taking techniques interpreting for vulnerable applicants and also the interpreter's own emotional well-being and, and experience as well so i think something like that's really badly needed and it could be provided as a kind of standalone cpd um, course or it could be integrated into a master's qualification in interpreting for example so yeah i suppose that's uh, maybe three overarching points to, to finish off Thank you so much for telling us all about your research. It's still being marked, uh, but it will be available <laughs> online uh, from the University of Glasgow's thesis repository uh, once that's finally completed. 2025. Uh, 2020, yeah. <laughs> we we don't, but it really could be. Uh, no, let's hope not. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thanks to you too. Thank you. Bye now. Shukran, grazie, tapaliv, totenda. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the full show notes and for more information about our work, please visit bit.ly forward slash UNESCO underscore Ryla.